After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Letters. We're talking about letters today. The letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, he wanted it to be read in the church in Laodicea and vice versa. Why letters? So today what we're talking about is why do we have letters in the New Testament? Oh, go back one. I love this picture. Some sailor many decades ago sitting there with all of his family photos writing letters home using, notice, not a biro, uh, but a, you see that ink pot there? Who of us owned a pink pot, an ink pot at some point? Yes, you remember dipping the fountain pen in, sucking up the, spilling it everywhere, blotting paper. I, I know I'm not, so anybody younger than probably me is not understanding what else what I'm talking about, but I don't know, maybe. But there was something rather nice about, about all that kind of writing. What's the best letter you've ever received? Let me ask you to think about that for a minute. What's the best letter you ever received? While you're thinking about that, I'll tell you. Of course, for me, uh, the best letters I ever received were when Penny and I were boyfriend and girlfriend, and she would write me a letter, and it would arrive at my home, that's where I was living at the time, and I wrote my letters to her on that desk there. That's my old bedroom, and the desk at which I sat, writing terrible love poetry, which will... <laughs> Never see the light of day. No, no, not a chance. And it came from my heart, so I'll just put it that way. That's why I wrote those letters. That's why I read the letters when they arrived from Penny. So tell me about uh, uh, the best letter you've ever received. What would it be? Thinking through a letter, not an email, but a letter. Can you think of a special one that you received? Great letter you received. Yeah, Chantel. <laughs> A tax rebate. Those are great letters. Yes. A tax rebate. Yeah. Fantastic when you get one of those. Excellent. What about any others that we remember receiving? Did you have your hand up? No. Scratching? Okay. Uh, yes. A job offer, right? You went for a job, you got got the offer. Those are good, aren't they? Any others, uh, Liesl? So um, we were married very young, so we had to go off to the military, and he wrote me a letter every week. Oh, there you go. Akin? Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the apology comes in first. I see. <laughs> Shortly after that, I got about three offers, and I said to her earlier in the week that, "Don't worry, you know, um, job applications are my bosses. You know, get on. It's wonderful for you to get through." 
And it's a strange one, but Luke Nappel's letter just did me encourage because I remember those words. Something came. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because we forget what went behind. There's some good news, but there were some tough times perhaps running up to that. Well, letters are important. Yes, go ahead. Fantastic. Those are very, very special, aren't they? So let me ask you a question. This might seem like a really silly question, but why did God give us letters? Think about this for a minute. Why did God give us so many letters in the Bible? Why letters as opposed to some other form of communication? We've got Gospels. They tell us about the life of Jesus. We got the book of Acts, which gives us a lot of the history of the early church. So we got the example of the early church. Why don't we have, say, more Gospels, more history, or perhaps, I don't know, doctrinal treatises, you know, and articles, and the equivalent of a blog article or a chapter from a book? Why not more academic writing in the Bible? Why do, we, why do you think we have 21 letters in the New Testament? That's a large proportion of the New Testament. So let me ask you, why do you think God gave us letters? Stefan. Okay. Love one another. Okay, letters are relational. Okay. That's a great insight. Yes, that's a great insight. I hadn't thought about that. I'm steal it. Um, but I, that's, they're relational, whereas history and gospels aren't. Okay, very good. Uh, Lisa, you heard something? It's personal. Right, it's personal. Uh, Barry. Specific guidance, yes, rather than general, yes. Okay, Simon? They give indications as to how to behave in a congregational setting, in a, in a community, Christian community. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, something we don't perhaps sometimes think about is the way God chooses to communicate. Last week we talked about listening, about hearing from God. And one of the ways we hear from God is through the different ways the Bible explains, God explains himself. And one of those is letters. And we're going to talk about the letters a bit today. And we're going to talk about something specific from the letters uh, in the second part of what we're talking about here, first of all. So when you're writing a letter, generally speaking, if you're writing a letter, well, you look at the, uh, the New Testament letters, you're either solving a problem that you've heard about, like Paul heard there were problems in Corinth, so he writes to Corinth about those problems, or you write to answer a question that you've been asked. And so uh, Paul, again, in one of his letters says, now for the matters you wrote to me about, because they wrote to ask him questions. So a lot of the way we read the Bible, to read the letters rather, is to understand what the problems were that prompted the letter or what the questions were that prompted the letter, as well as some of the other issues around that. Now, what I would like to do today is suggest this. On the basis of a question I was sent by a friend of mine, he asked me, if you look at the letters, you take all 21 of them, and you take the significance of the mission of Christ and spreading of the good news and the saving of many souls, how is it that in those 21 letters, there's very little 
about evangelism. There's very little about what we might traditionally call the mission. It's not that it's not there at all, but I would challenge you to find many passages that talk directly about the mission of the church or instruction on how to carry out that mission. Why would that be? 21 letters and so little about evangelism in that sense. So I thought we might have a look at that as a way of thinking about issues in the letters that might help us in our own personal Bible study. As we read letters, we should be reading them not just for a nice verse that helps us get through the day, which is okay on one level, but we should also be getting to understand the letters and understanding why they were written and what they're written about so that we can apply their teaching to our own situation personally, but also congregationally, getting to know them better. So let me suggest a few thoughts here. First of all, though, we should say that, of course, evangelism, if you like, the mission was very important to Jesus. He said in Mark 1, uh, let's go to the nearby villages, let's move on, because uh, I want to preach there, because that is why I have come. I have come to spread the word and to teach people. Uh, in Luke 19, he said to uh, Zacchaeus, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So clearly, it's deep in the heart of Jesus. In Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all the nations. So he was expecting them, instructing and expecting them to go and tell others the good news of the gospel, of course. In the early church, we see that the, uh, the activity of evangelism was not something restricted to a few people. It wasn't just the apostles or a few people that were particularly gifted. We find the early church in Acts 8 is scattered. Stephen has been killed, and Saul starts to try and destroy the church, going from house to house, dragging off Christians. But it says in verse 5 there, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So we see that the DNA of the early church, something deep inside every Christian, was a desire to tell others about Jesus. So it's there in the activity of Jesus. It's there in the activity of the church. Similarly, in Acts chapter 11, some people went to Cyprus and Cyrene, uh, from there rather, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks, in other words, Gentiles, telling them the good news about Jesus. That hadn't been done before in that way. No one was instructing them to do it. No one sent them on a missionary journey. They weren't prayed over and sent out. They just traveled and thought, hmm, here are some Gentiles. Let's tell them about Jesus. We don't even know the names of these people. They weren't prominent leaders in the church with names that have been recorded. So again, it's just there in the, in the, in the DNA of the early church. So why is it not so much talked about in the letters? And I'm going to make a suggestion, and you can think about this and come to your own conclusions. But I think the reason why it's not mentioned in the letters is simply because they fully understood the significance of talking about their faith with people anyway. And the way that they did that was not so much by telling people, although that's perfectly legitimate, but the way they did that was by simply by applying what they knew about Jesus to their personal lives and living in such a way that they stood out. They just stood out. And if you stand out, you don't have to tell people you're a Christian. You might need to answer some questions, but you stand out. If you stand out, then people will notice. And a lot of the letters are about helping the Christians to stand out in their context, in their world, in their culture, in a way that demonstrates who God is to the world. 
Standing out is the key. Now, I should say, not standing out for the sake of it. Like, look at me, I'm different. <laughs> not in that sense, but if we truly live what Jesus teaches, it disturbs people. They notice. They notice whether we want them to or not, in a sense. So let me pull out a few uh, thoughts as to how and why they stood out and see what you think. The first thing that I see is the early church stood out and the early Christians stood out because they were confident, which led them to be courageous. They were confident in God, which gave them courage. In Acts chapter 4, the uh, apostles are being persecuted and they're hauled in before the authorities and held to account for what they're doing. And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Peter and John and the other apostles were ordinary men in the same sense that we're ordinary. I mean, that doesn't mean they they weren't educated, but it means more they hadn't been trained by a recognized rabbi. They They didn't have any prominence in society at the time. Like most of us don't have much prominence in society. We're not on the front page of the newspaper, probably, thankfully, actually. So... They were ordinary in that sense, but they stood out because they lived boldly. They lived courageously. They'd been with Jesus. That rubbed off on them, so they lived like he lived. And I think that's one of the key reasons why in so many of the letters we get instructions about who Jesus is. Almost all the letters have more about Jesus than anything else. Read through Philippians. Read through Galatians. Read through Colossians and Ephesians. And get your image of who Jesus is refreshed. Read Hebrews and be stunned, stunned and astonished at how amazing Jesus is. And when we, we, we stop standing out when we stop being amazed by Jesus and thrilled about him and emboldened by him. It's one of the reasons we need our personal times of quiet with God. We need our devotional times with God. We need our own personal convictions from our own personal Bible study. Because that's how we get connected with Jesus, which gives us courage, gives us confidence in him so that we can withstand persecution and opposition and difficulty and helps us be courageous despite whatever else is going on. The, the motto of Watford is Audentior in the Latin, which means be bold. That's the Watford Town motto. Be bold, or, or, or it can mean with greater boldness. How about... How about this being something that we got known for? Is the boldest people in Watford are the Christians? Wouldn't that be the right thing? The most confident people in the whole town of Watford are Christians. You can tell you just the way they carry themselves, the way they are, the way that they don't they don't give in to pressure. Just the way they are. They're just bold. They're courageous. They're confident. Not in ourselves, right? You can't manufacture that. It comes from your relationship with Jesus. They stood out because they were bold. And that led them to trust God. Let me take you on a slight detour, but it's important. In Corinth, for example, in Corinth there was a problem with uh, different views on whether it was permissible to eat meat sacrificed in pagan temples to idols. And Paul is writing to help them with this. And I'm not going to go into the whole issue right now, but just to make a point, which is that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, 
And I don't want you to be participants with demons. And I think a church could say, amen. We don't want to be participants with demons, okay? He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. He's talking about the, uh, the Lord's Supper there, the wine. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, right? Yes, Jesus is Lord. And I'll have a little cup of demon juice. Okay, I, I'll have both. It's, it's good. You can't do that. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table, meaning communion, and the table of demons. What's he getting at here? He's saying, you, you, can, you, you cannot go to the pagan temple and eat there. Even though you know it doesn't mean anything. Even though you know those so-called gods aren't anything. They're not real gods. And you can sit there and think, yeah, these pagans are eating to their gods. and They think they're gods, but I know they're not. And I can take part because I know that that isn't the case. He said, no, you can't do that. Because everybody in that pagan temple is going to think you are eating the food of demons. You're eating the wine of the demons. That, that you think when you go to church on a Sunday, your Lord's cup is the same as the demon cup you're having sharing with me here. So even though you know it isn't significant, you can't do that because you don't stand out anymore. You, don't, you can't be doing this. So he says, that's, uh, that's not acceptable. You, you can't do that, even though in, in verse 25, he says, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And what he's saying there is the meat that's, uh, that sacrifice is made in the temple, some of that meat stays in the temple for the meals there. Some of it gets sold to the marketplace. And so Christians were having a conscience issue about, if I go to the marketplace, how do I know if the meat there has been part of the sacrifice to the pagan gods or not? And maybe I shouldn't buy any meat in just in case, and what should I do? And what Paul is saying is, look, if you're buying it in the marketplace, it's got nothing to do at that point with what's going on in the temple. Because you're not then eating with pagans, drinking the cup of the demons. It's a separate issue. So yeah, you can buy that and have a clear conscience. Don't worry about it but you can't go to the temple and take part in that. And why is that significant? Because you might think, well, that's no big deal. If, if I don't want to go to the pagan temple, I won't go to the pagan temple. What's the big deal? The problem is, and this is where I would really like us to think about this and ask ourselves what the modern equivalent is, because I'm not entirely clear for myself at this point, but I think it's important. You couldn't, as a Christian, go to that pagan temple, and it was problematic because that's where business was done. That's where you did business. That's where you networked. That's where you got stuff. That's where you made, it didn't make your living there, but you built the relationships which meant you could have your job, which meant you could have your uh, business, which meant, meant you could trade with other people. And so if you didn't go there, you were financially significantly disadvantaged and it was noticed that you weren't there. Everybody else in your society, in your street, in your area would know if you didn't go. They'd be like, she's the odd one out. She's the weirdo that doesn't go to the pagan temple. And you might find it difficult to get trade, to get business going. People wouldn't trade with you because, well, if you don't go to the temple, you're not one of us, I'm not going to deal with you. It caused a significant amount of problems for the Christians in the early church that they didn't go to the pagan temples. It was tempting for them to do so. Later in Revelation, uh, Jesus says this to one of the churches. I have this against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. This is about Old Testament. You who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And that's an Old Testament scenario that, that happened. He's saying this is what's kind of happening now in, in your church, where you have people saying, rationalizing, no, 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 you can, go to the you can go to the pagan temple. You can eat those, that food sacrificed to idols in the temple. You can do it because you know it doesn't really mean anything. And Jesus is saying to that church, no, you can't do that. You need to not participate in that. 
in particular at those festivals and those uh, uh, meals in the pagan temples as well, there was a lot of sexual immorality. Uh, based on the Roman way of doing meals, you'd have a symposium, a kind of a talk, and then you'd have a meal afterwards, and the meal would degenerate as more and more wine was drunk to the point where there'd be all kinds of stuff going on. Women would come in as prostitutes. This is the kind of situation, actually not only women as prostitutes, all kinds of prostitutes would come into that situation. He's saying, no, you, you can't be doing with that. So my question for us to wrestle with and think about is, what do our convictions as Christians lead us to not take part in that make people around us think there's something wrong with us or that may disadvantage us in life? If we have convictions that are different from the world, it's got to show up somewhere. Where might that be for you? So the first thing we see about the early church, and the letters emphasize this, is having confidence in God so that you can live confidently under persecution and to the extent that you look rather weird in the world because you don't take part in everything else that people do. Have trust and confidence in God. But the second thing is this. It's the emphasis on love, loving one another. John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. You will stand out. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The depth of love in the early church stood out. People around, if you read the book of Acts, it stood out. A lot of the letters are about how to handle relational challenges. Don't slander one another. Don't gossip about one another. Uh, forgive one another. Don't grieve one another. I mean, you could write a whole long list from the letters. Because Christian life, whilst not complicated, is hard. Maybe not so hard if you're on your own and having a church of one. But once you add a second person into the uh, equation, the Christian life gets hard. Now, if you meet once a year, no. But if you meet every Sunday, and perhaps even more often, yeah. Relationships are where the rubber hits the road of the Christian life. Love one another. You know, the early Christians were thought of as so loving so in each other's lives that they were accused of incest because the Christian uh, services were called love feasts. And because the people came together for a love feast and spent so much time together and loved being together and celebrating together in a way that stood out in the world, people thought they must be incestuous. They called each other brother and sister. It's, there's early, early writings about this. Um, this chap, Mark Minicius Felix, writing about 200 AD, wrote this in defense. He said, we practice sharing in our banquets, by which he means church services, which are not only modest, but also sober. For we do not indulge in entertainments. And entertainment is a code word for sexual activity. That's what that means. Uh, we don't indulge in those, but uh, nor do we prolong our feasts with wine. Rather, we temper our joyousness with seriousness, with chaste discourse, and with bodies even more chaste. He wrote that in defense of, uh, of the church around that time because the love of the Christians for each other was so, so intense that it looked weird to the people around, even to the point where they thought they must be incestuous. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Excuse me. I'm off the antihistamines from my, my throat, which means the hay fever is back. Oh, well. Can I encourage us to think about hospitality, just as a thought? 
I know the women talked about this recently, and I think this area is something we've got to grow in because COVID separated us so much, we got used to not being hospitable. And how much and how often is a question for each family or person to think about. But hospitality is, it's just Christian. And it's something we need to be involved in. So love, and lastly, I would say is compassion. The early Christians stood out because they were confident, because they were loving, and because they were compassionate. Have a look at this in James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ, <laughs> must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, walks in, wearing a gold ring, fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James wrote this in a letter to a church because that church must have been struggling with this. They had become, uh, become discriminatory valuing the wealthy and the prominent over the poor and the socially insignificant. If the early church struggled with it, all churches of all ages will struggle with this, to some extent. The early church stood out because it was compassionate for the poor and the oppressed, both within its number and in the world around it. In the early church, we see several examples of collections of money being taken up from one part of uh, some churches in one place to be taken to help churches in another place where people were particularly poor. Churches uh, helping the churches in Judea when they were uh, going through a famine, for example. I think in, the, in our congregation, we need to wrestle with the fact that we are entering and are likely to have an extended time of, of economic, countrywide economic challenge and that's going to affect some of us potentially quite, quite severely. It won't affect all of us that much. Some of us will have to make adjustments to the way we live, which are frankly just to do with the levels of one luxury over another. But some of us may be struggling to pay some basic bills. I would just want to acknowledge that we're going into a difficult time. Inflation's rising, uh, the price of food is rising, uh, fuel, uh, energy bills, and many other things are becoming much more challenging. And if I could just say this, if any of us in the congregation, if we're struggling to make ends meet, please don't, I'd encourage you to, you may feel embarrassed, but I'd encourage you to pray and get the confidence to, to push through your embarrassment to talk to somebody. Let's share our burdens here. And if we can help one another, practically, economically, in any sense, we, we can do that here. I believe we have enough resources. So please don't, don't think because you're struggling that there's something wrong with you or sinful or, or you're to be looked down on. No one should be looked down. We're all going to struggle at one time or another. I mean, I remember Penny and I, in our early days of Christian ministry, we weren't exactly well paid, should we say. And uh, I remember Christians bringing bags of, of food from Tesco's for us because we didn't actually have enough uh, money to buy groceries for us and our kids at the time. Um, we've all been through some tough times, I'm sure. Maybe you're going through one now. Please just open up your heart and talk to somebody and let's see how we can support and help one another. Um, both in the church but outside the church. I'm really grateful for many of us who've found ways to help uh, people uh, made uh, refugees by the war in Ukraine. It's lovely to have some Ukrainians with us today. Great to see you here. 
It's our privilege to help, and similarly with situations in Afghanistan. Um, I think it's really important that we do what we can and to stand out in that way. Uh, it is true that the church in Watford is standing out in helping the Afghans, the hundreds of Afghans that are currently in hotels uh, in Watford. Uh, it's actually stunning what other groups are doing. And I think it's important for us to think about how can we make our difference. There's uh, one of the Roman emperors was called Julian the Apostate, which is not the title you really want. Uh, apostate meaning as in he was like a heretic and left, left the faith. Uh, he was the last so-called pagan emperor. Um, and he got very frustrated because he was against Christianity, very, very anti-Christian. But he was very frustrated because Christians had a good reputation for helping the poor, and that made the pagan priests, which he favored, look bad. So he wrote this. He's writing this to some pagan priests. He says, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's his word for Christians, and impious because they don't worship the pagan gods, these impious Galileans observed this fact that the poor weren't being taken care of and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He's writing that to rebuke the pagan priests, hoping to shame them into action, and according to history, they didn't do it. He was very upset. But isn't that brilliant that the church shamed the world? I mean, not for the sake of it, you know what I'm saying. But they just took the teachings of Jesus seriously in their context. And it was brave to do that because Julian the Apostate was very anti-Christian. They were compassionate and it stood out. How can we have an impact on the people in society around us with our compassion? How can we do that? So three thoughts from the letters, all connected with why isn't there more about evangelism? The early church grew rapidly. It spread widely, rapidly. It did, it was astonishing how the mission progressed in that sense. And yet we see so little in the letters. And I think it's because the letter writers and basically the Holy Spirit, of course, behind those letter writers, but people like Peter and Paul and James and John and others who wrote those letters, they understood that if they could help Christians be focused on God, have a big picture of Jesus, be inspired by Jesus, and to truly live what they believed with confidence in God, trusting him, even if it meant making decisions that were financially disadvantageous, even if it meant uh, being so loving that people thought they were weird, even if it meant taking care of other people's poor as well as their own to the point where the world would notice and think that was strange and complain to other people, that if they could help the Christians to do that, then the mission would take care of itself. Is it good for us to, talk to, to directly talk to people about Jesus? Of course it is. That's a good thing to do. But is that the main way most of us are going to have an impact evangelistically in this world? No, it's the way we live. Some things to think about from this letter, or these, the letters, and thinking about the letters today. Which of these three areas of confidence in God and love and compassion, which of those three might God be asking us to pay attention to? Perhaps it's one more than the others. Or which of the three might God be asking you personally to pay more attention to? Maybe one of those three.
So in a moment, we're going to take some bread and wine, and we're going to take of the cup of the Lord to remind us of where all of this comes from. Our confidence comes because God sacrificed his son on the cross. We love like Christ because he loved us. We have compassion on the poor because Christ had compassion on us. And the bread and wine are what remind us of the cost of that, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Simon, are you going to come up and pray for us, please? Thank you.